on one of those days, he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come up from the village from Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the, of the Lord was with them to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a, a bed a, par, a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding uh, no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up. They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the mist of, before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, "Man, your sins are forgiven you." And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying who is the who is this who speaks blasphemies who can forgive sins but God alone when Jesus perceived their thoughts he answered them why do you question in your hearts which is easy which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authorized on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately... He rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Oop, there we go. Awesome. Man, I get, I get nervous coming up here, so it's okay. You did great, man. There's some big words in there, too, that would have tripped me up if I had to read it in front of everybody. So, awesome. Well, I'm thankful uh, just to be able to, to join with you, um, as I do every week, just in worship, but to get to bring the word uh, this evening as we continue in our series, right? So, we've been in the series since the beginning of summer, and believe it or not, whether you'd like to admit it or not, we're about midway through summer. That's hard to believe, right? Oh, I, mean, I tell you, there's nothing worse than going to like Target and you begin to see in the back corner of the store as the school stuff starts to like take over the rest of the store. Oh, that's like, that puts a pit in my stomach. So uh, we're continuing in our series, Summer in the Sun, and we're taking a closer look at Jesus uh, through the lens of Luke and, and his gospel account. And so that's what we're doing this summer. So we're looking at the gospel of Luke and we're going through different accounts in scripture to be able to get a closer look at who Jesus is and what he was about. So each week so far as we've gone through this series from the beginning of summer, uh, we've been looking at the ministry of Jesus and building layer upon layer to gain a fuller perspective of who Jesus is 
and what he came to do. So already we've discussed the temptation of Christ at the very beginning of the series, if you remember, the temptation of Jesus and that whole scene where he's baptized and then the Holy Spirit drives him, in Scripture it says, into the desert, really is like the ordination service for Jesus. It's the commissioning service uh, for Jesus into his ministry. And so it starts with the temptation of Christ, and from there we moved into Jesus' mission, what he came to do. And we looked at the authority that he has to do what he came to do and where that authority comes from. And then we even looked at, like last week, some of the miracles that Jesus performed as if to affirm uh, the authority from which he was speaking. Those miracles back up Jesus and who he claims to be and what he has come to do. Today we're going to shift a little bit our focus, and our focus will be more on the deity of Christ. And that's our focus for this evening, is the deity of Christ. And this particular passage marks a shift in Jesus' ministry as it reveals Christ's ultimate purpose for coming to the world, forgiving sins. Amen? That is why Jesus came to the world, was to heal us of our sin and the result and the consequences of our sin. And so we begin to see Jesus shift the focus of his ministry and the trajectory of his ministry from this moment on is changed. Consequently, as a result of this shift in his ministry, it actually begins to lay out the road to the cross. And you'll see that develop as we look at this passage here today. So as we begin, I want to take a moment, and since we're talking about Jesus, I want us to reflect for a moment on our relationship with Jesus Christ. How's that going? How is your relationship with Jesus? How have you been growing in your walk with Christ daily? You know, like any relationship that you have, any good relationship that you have, you need to tend to it, don't you? You need to pay attention to that relationship, and you really need to foster and nurture that relationship. So what have you been doing lately in your life, other than coming to church on the weekends, to tend to your relationship with Jesus Christ? Recently, I was listening in on a conversation, and I was struck by what was being said between the two guys who were talking. One of the individuals said that the only way to have true accountability in our life is to have God's love shed abroad on our hearts. What that means is that at the end of the day, our personal relationship with Jesus is what will change and transform us. Do you believe that? That the closeness of your walk with Jesus Christ is what will transform your heart and cause you to become more like Christ the longer that we do this thing. The more you pay attention to your relationship with Jesus, the greater effect it will have over the course of your life and your walk with Jesus Christ. Because as believing or as professing believers, we must take the time as believers, to understand at greater depth what God has done for us. We need to preach the gospel to our hearts on a daily basis. I know just like this story, it becomes very Sunday school for us. We've heard it before, right? 
we've heard these stories over and over and time and time again, but we need to hear the gospel every single day of our lives, and we need to get into the habit of preaching the gospel to our hearts because as people, we so quickly forget, don't we? We forget the power that the gospel has to change and transform this sinner's life. And we need to develop the habit of preaching the gospel to ourselves daily and understand to a greater depth what God has accomplished for us, what it means that Jesus has forgiven our sins and what it means for us to be loved by God. As believers, we need to know what it means to plumb the depths of the scriptures, not just to check it off of our Bible reading plan or to clear our conscience and say, I read my Bible today, but for the purpose of knowing God more. That's why you read the word, not just to say, I did what I needed to do to get through the day, or I did what I needed to do to feel like I checked all the boxes of what a religious person would do to feel good about themselves. No, we read the Word of God so we can know who God is. So we can know who He is, what His plan was from before the foundations of the world were laid, so we can continue to grow in an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. And we need to, as believers, allow, as Romans tells us in Romans chapter 12, to have the love of God shed abroad on our hearts, to know God's love. I really believe that our walk with God and the love of God in Christ is meant to be experienced and applied to our lives, not just known in our heads, but known experientially in our hearts. We ought to be able to experience the love of God. And I want to be very clear that I don't think this happens in an emotionally charged worship, worship service, but I believe that this happens over a lifetime of commitment to applying God's word to our lives daily. That's how it accomplishes what it was meant to, the word of God, that is, accomplishes what it was meant to accomplish by people of God seeking God and living for God and applying his word to their lives and living for him as his word commands us to do, not just being hearers of the word only, but being doers of the word as well, right? So how is your relationship with Jesus? As we take time here in this summer series, Summer in the Sun, let me ask you, how is your relationship with Jesus? How are you growing in deeper love with Christ? And I felt like talking about that very early on in this sermon, this message, because I think that we've become so familiar with church, haven't we? We've become so familiar with going through the motions, just like this story. It falls on deaf ears in some way. You've heard this story. If you've grown up in church for any length of time, you've had the, the, the felt boards, right? With the little cutouts of Jesus and his disciples lowering the man on the mat down at Jesus' feet. You've heard this story before, and if you've gone to any, any church for any length of time, you've heard this sermon preached dozens of times from many different angles. Let me, just by a show of hands, ask if you've read this story or heard this story before. Yes, we have all heard this story in a way that it's likely we've become too familiar with it. 
Because I think that there's something really incredible going on in this passage that we so often miss and do a disservice to. To some degree, everything that I have to say this evening, you've already heard said before. But my hope is that as we look at this passage again, that we can see Jesus more clearly and understand him more accurately so that our faith can grow. Amen? So together as the church, you know the Bible was meant to be read communally. I know that we have our own little personal devotion times, but there is something about sitting underneath of the teaching of God's word or in a community group setting, talking about your devotions and what God has done so you can see things from different perspectives. So together this evening, join me with a fresh set of eyes in seeing who Jesus is from Luke's perspective in this passage. Luke begins by saying in verse 17, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So unlike the Gospel of Mark, it's pretty interesting, this is actually across the Synoptic Gospels, this same account you can find in the other Gospel accounts as well. You can find it in Matthew, and you can find it in Mark. And just to help you understand how the Gospels were comprised, actually the other writers took Mark's book and they borrowed a lot of the material to affirm what they were trying to accomplish as they wrote their own Gospel account. So will reference Mark, but unlike the Gospel of Mark, where Mark gives the location of where this miracle happened, which was Capernaum, Luke doesn't give the location for where this miracle took place. Luke is trying to accomplish something differently. He's simply trying to help us, the reader, understand that Jesus' ministry is really starting to pick up some steam. And it's beginning to spread rapidly throughout the area around them, even to the point where it starts to gain the attention of the religious leaders. Luke's first mention of the Pharisees is in this gospel account. It's in this story. So I want you to imagine with me, as we've been preaching over the past couple weeks through the book of Luke, so far we've been introduced to the hero Jesus. And now, as the story continues, we're being introduced to one of the villains of the story, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Have you ever had someone stand over your shoulder and watch you as you worked? You know what I'm talking about? That feeling of someone's peering over your shoulder. That is like one of the most nerve-wracking experiences that you're bound to mess up, right? Something that you've done a million times before that you're super confident of, they're watching you as you do it, and sure enough, you're bound to mess up. That's exactly what the religious leaders are doing in this situation. They come from all of the surrounding areas, all of the surrounding villages, even Jerusalem, which is a foreshadowing of where Christ is headed, where he would ultimately be put on trial and then crucified. But they come from all of the surrounding area, these religious leaders, for the purpose of finding fault in Jesus' ministry. 
We can read about this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 4, where it says the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Destroying Jesus was their purpose. The Pharisees, I got a little picture here for you, just to give you a little bit of like a, a picture of how mean these guys looked, or at least just a religious understanding of how holy these individuals looked. These are the people that filled this room as Jesus was teaching. The Pharisees were actually a relatively small yet influential group of non-priestly separatists who thought it was their job to keep the nation faithful to the Mosaic law. The teachers of the law that are mentioned here, often referred to as scribes, worked hand in hand with the Pharisees. And in fact, many of the scribes themselves were Pharisees. They were the elites. They were the untouchables. They were holier than thou. We could never hope to be as good as they were. These influential religious leaders weren't there to worship Jesus. Instead, they were there to find fault with Jesus so that they could maintain control and they could remain in power. Who is this young rabbi who's gaining a following for himself? We have to squash it. We have to stop it in its tracks. However, we're told, in contrast to the power of these influential men, that instead, the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. You know what's really interesting about this reference? It's a very strange reference or, or wording, very strange saying, because Jesus had the power of God because, as you and I know, he was God. But this phrase, the power of the Lord was with him to heal, actually appears back in Exodus chapter 12, and one commentator said that this phrase would equate Jesus' ministry with the authority of God found in freeing Israel from captivity. In Christ, we see a new exodus is at hand. How cool is that? A new Moses leading people out of their sin, leading people out of bondage, leading people out of darkness. Jesus is leading a new exodus movement, and he has the authority of God backing him up to do it. You can actually almost feel, if you can imagine being in that room with me, the electricity in the air as Jesus' ministry conflicts with the religious leaders of the day. While all of this is taking place inside of the house, on the outside, we read in verses 18 and 19 about a couple of guys who were up to no good. No, I just, that just came to me in the moment. A couple of guys in verses 18 through 19, five guys in fact, one of them being a paralytic. It says, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So homes in this area would have had flat roofs, right? They would have been flat roofs. There's a picture here of what one of the homes in Galilee or Capernaum, that surrounding area, would have looked like. 
They were made with flat roofs with large beams that would have spanned the entire length of the home. And across the top of those beams, there would have been sticks and bundles of grass covered with mud. There were actually rollers that they would use to pack it down so that way it would maintain the ability to be waterproof. And there would have likely been stairs leading up to the roof or at the very least a ladder. Because oftentimes what you'll find in the evenings, people would be on their roofs. Roofs were often used as a place to gather to catch the evening breeze, so to speak, much like a porch would be uh, functioning today. So these men would have climbed these stairs or this ladder that would have been attached to the house, and they brought their friend on top of the roof, and they started to dig through the many layers of the roof. Now, this would have been highly distracting as debris fell from the roof onto the people, including Jesus, below. You want to talk about, like, interrupting a sermon or a message. We have, sometimes we have the kids downstairs and they can hear, like, the bass of the songs that they're playing. Like, that's like a welcomed inter- If someone started cutting through the tin roof, Paul Harrison would probably have a fit. You know what I mean? We would be, like, that would be, service is over, we're done. No, Jesus has a different plan in mind. You can almost get the picture as the layers of the roof are slowly being removed and light begins to fill the room from the newly placed sunlight from above. As the sunlight begins to pierce through the darkness in the room, you can make out the silhouette of a man being lowered down at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, aha, I've got an idea. Okay, I'm paraphrasing there a little bit. But this is what I call a divine illustration. Jesus takes this opportunity where he's rudely interrupted. Never mind the fact that if you go back to Mark, it actually says this is Jesus' home. We don't traditionally think of Jesus having a home. It might not have belonged to him, but it's where Jesus was staying. So this is where, so if you are worried about like whose roof are they cutting a hole in, it was God's roof. It was Jesus' roof. I was talking before, at least Jesus probably knew from his dad how to replace the roof on the house, right? He probably learned as a handyman how to fix a hole in the roof. And so this is a divine illustration. And Jesus takes this opportunity to make an incredible statement. In verse 20, Jesus says, and when he saw their faith, He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. I have to say, that's not what I would have expected. I mean, he's paralyzed. And the first thing Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. Like Jesus, they just cut a hole in the roof and they lowered him on a mat. You can clearly see this guy is not well. And the first thing that you say is that his sins are forgiven. You know, it's really important to understand that Jesus is not connecting this man's condition to his sin. He's not saying this man is paralyzed because of his sin. This doesn't fit Jesus' pattern for healing. You can go to John chapter 9, where there's a man who is born blind. And they ask the question, who sinned, this, this man's parents or his, his great, who, who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not what's happening here. This man was born blind so that I can perform this miracle, right? So Jesus is not connecting this man's condition uh, to the sin in his life. Instead, 
I would ask us to consider that Jesus is using this man's condition as an illustration in the middle of his teaching to show how we are all spiritually crippled before God. We are all paralyzed and helpless in our state before God. This is a picture of us all being broken, laying at the feet of Jesus. Taking this opportunity, Jesus uses it to speak to our greatest need. And this is the moment Jesus says something that would forever change the trajectory of his ministry. He proclaims this man's sins forgiven. He knows what he's doing. He does this in front of the religious leaders. And as a result, they begin to question Jesus, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know what makes this incredibly challenging is that the religious leaders are right. If this man claims to forgive sins, who does he think he is? Only God can do that. They're only half right. They're right that if this man, Jesus, claims to forgive sins and he's not God, then he's blaspheming against God. But if, in fact, this man is God, then they've missed it completely. At this moment, it says that Jesus perceived their thoughts, which is another picture of Christ's deity, isn't it? He knew their thoughts. He didn't just guess what they were thinking. Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, the creator of the universe, knew what they were thinking and answered them, why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? In every way as we read this passage, we learn that Jesus is revealing who he really is. Whereas Jesus could have just healed this man and continued his ministry, he took an opportunity to make a bold claim about himself. And that's what Luke is trying to get at. That as we read this passage and as we study it for ourselves, we're left asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is this man? Who is Jesus? This story is a powerful display of Christ's deity, that he is God in the flesh. First, he asks, why do you question in your hearts? That's a great question. In contrast to the five men who had faith, Jesus reveals the true intentions of the religious leaders. Immediately, these religious leaders question in their hearts, which I think is a great example of you and I. How many times do we question God? How many times do we question Jesus? We live in a world that is full of skeptics. You know, most Christians in the United States don't believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Most Christians, professing Christians, don't claim to believe that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. They just think that he was some man. We live in a world of conspiracy theories and skepticism. And Jesus calls the religious leaders out for it. Why do you question who do you think you are? Why do you doubt you of all people should know who I am and what I came to do? He continues by asking another question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? 
Now, if someone asked me that question, which is easier, I would say really neither because I can't do either of those two things, right? Both of those things are impossible for us. But of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you because who can prove it? However, Jesus then says, but that you may know, and I love this, and this will be the focus of our passage for the remainder of the evening of our time together, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Guess what happens next? He does. He stands to his feet. He takes his mat and he runs out of that place praising God. But there's so much more to discuss. First, this is perhaps one of the most beautiful pictures of God the Father's approval of his son on earth. Here, God the Father fully vindicates his son in front of the religious leaders by healing this man according to Christ's word. You know, it was taught among Jewish teachers that God wouldn't empower sinners. So in that sense, the religious leaders are left speechless before Jesus. Yet, you can almost hear the words of the Father echoing from Jesus' baptism, Luke 3.22, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Through this interaction, Jesus is revealed as God in the flesh, which takes us to the key phrase of this entire passage. In this interaction, we hear that Jesus refers to himself as the son of man for the first time in Luke's account. You know, Luke, throughout the remainder of his gospel account, uses this phrase for a total of 25 times. And it actually is Jesus' preferred title for himself. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's a bit of an odd name if you think about it, isn't it? I mean, we could easily read it and just think, well, Jesus, you know, he's just referring to himself as Jesus. He can say whatever he wants. But what does it really mean? What is Jesus really getting at? Because it's a bit of an odd name. But upon closer examination, Jesus' use of this phrase, son of man, is nothing short of astounding. Now, Jesus spoke Aramaic. That was the language that they spoke at that time. And the term son of man was actually slang that referred to humanity in general especially in reference to human weakness and frailty. So while the religious leaders struggled with Jesus forgiving sins, they thought nothing of him referencing himself as the Son of Man. They completely missed it. Because we can find this term, Son of Man, in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel. I'd encourage you, if you can find it quickly, (laughs) turn, it'll be on the screen as well. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. This is what it says. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's what he's talking about. When he says son of man, they might have thought, oh, he's just referring to someone. He's not referring to just any old person. He's referring to the dream that Daniel had. He's saying, I'm that son of man that stood before God Almighty, the ancient of days, and he gave me dominion and authority. He set apart a people for me, and my kingdom shall not pass away, nor shall it be destroyed. That's the son of man that Jesus is talking about, but they're too dense to catch it. The fundamental aim of Luke's gospel is to get us to answer the question for ourselves, who is Jesus? The specific account outlines in this chapter 5 all build on each other and culminate around this moment in the story. And from this point on, the trajectory of Jesus' ministry changes. He's not come just to hear the heal the physical needs, but the deeper spiritual needs. He came to heal us of our sin. Lines are being formed. Decisions about Jesus are being made. Blasphemy is the ultimate accusation that leads to his crucifixion. And as onlookers, we're left with how to respond. Who is Jesus? From this passage, there are only two options when we think about Jesus. Using the title that he assigned to himself as the Son of Man, we can take it to mean that he is either just another person or we can take it to mean what Daniel saw in a dream, that he is in fact the son of God. C.S. Lewis, we can borrow this from C.S. Lewis, referred to this as the trilemma. Either Jesus is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. The bold claim Jesus makes about himself will not allow us to leave the question unanswered. Jesus is God, found in the appearance of man. Yes, he can relate to us in our weakness and our frailty, but we mustn't be tempted to minimize Jesus to a one-dimensional figure. Instead, Luke helps us see Jesus for who he really is. He helps us to see beyond the human facade of Jesus to the fact that he is the God-man who came to heal and take away our sins. So how should we respond? The correct response to Jesus is modeled by the man who was healed and those who witnessed what Jesus did. I'm going to encourage the worship team to go ahead and make their way to the stage. They were seized with amazement and glorified God. Notice that nothing is said of the religious leaders after the healing occurs. They're completely silenced, aren't they? We don't read about them anymore because the attention shifts from the naysayers from those who are criticizing, from those who are being critical and who are filled with doubt. The attention shifts from them and it shifts to those who are glorifying God in worship. When those who are filled with faith worship and glorify God, it displaces the silence of skeptics. So what do we learn from this passage in closing? We know from the five men how to respond to Jesus in faith, not skepticism. 
We can gain a deeper understanding of who Jesus really is and what he came to do. He is more than just a man. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. And if we believe that, we, like the paralyzed man who walked and those who observed, should respond in awe, glorifying God, telling others about the salvation of Jesus. Amen? If you really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, it should not seem unnatural to us to share the power of the forgiveness that we received. Have we become so religious like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Have we become so religious that we've lost the conviction to tell others of what Jesus has done in our life? Was this Jesus thing that we're doing just a phase for you? Or will we leave here today like the paralyzed man who is allowed to walk, made able to walk, giving God praise because he's healed us of our sins, amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for your word. God, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would understand who he is just a little bit more this evening. That yes, he is and was a man who walk the earth. Yes, we can and he can relate to us in every way. But in spite of that, God, he did not sin. He was in fact God in the flesh. That he did in fact come to take away our sins. And God, I pray that you would help us as professing believers to be reminded of the day that we were saved the day like that paralyzed man, that spiritually, the day that we were given legs, that we were given the opportunity to walk again, that we were given a second shot at life. And God, that like that man, we wouldn't keep the message to ourselves, but we would praise you, that we would live in awe of you, that we would testify of what you have done for us to the world around us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.